it's a uh, sad and melancholic experience that most of you will come to some stage in your life when what people call history you think of as being current affairs. The older you get, the events that you consider are current affairs get written up in your children and grandchildren's history books. So in 1972 there was a major change in government in Australia, but where were you in 1972? Just as the other day in 1975 when we had our major constitutional crisis, but you don't remember that one either, do you? And for me, these are current affairs, but to you, it's history. Uh, just like the Vietnam War and the Gulf War and say nothing of where were you when John Kennedy was assassinated. And yes, I do know where I was and yes, all my contemporaries also know where they were at that moment in time so none of us can agree as who did the assassination. However, more poignant still is the last touch of the last touch of a historical event which lost completely to the world. So recently one of the few remaining Anzacs died and uh, he was given a state funeral. Not that he was such a prominent member of the armed forces but because he is one of the very few World War I men left and we're running out of the eyewitnesses. It doesn't mean that we doubt the historical facts or the events took place it's just that you can't go back and check. Well you can check in one level but you can't you can't ask the new question of the information anymore. It's kind of come to an end. You can't sit and talk with a person and say, but what was it like? What did they wear? What did they go? What, what food did they eat? You know, the kind of question that no one would bother writing up, which you can, you can ask in oral history, is gone once the people have died. Eventually there came a time when the last apostle lived. And then, in his death, the testimony had come to a close. Uh, they had written their letters, they had preached their sermons, they had founded their churches, they had written the gospel, but they couldn't be contacted again to be asked those kind of annoying details. Did Jesus part his hair? Did he do it on the left-hand side or the right-hand side or down the centre? I mean, the kind of thing that is of no consequence whatsoever, but you can't ask that anymore because there's no one around that can tell you anymore. They couldn't be contacted. John chapter 21 tells us the tale of two fishermen, the apostles Peter and John. Now you know that the stories of fishermen can't be trusted, especially how big was the fish that got away, but these two fishermen were called upon to trust that they are trustworthy and one in particular is trustworthy and he is the one who has written this gospel account. Uh, there's also a question of it being the end of their life. It would seem that this was towards the end of the apostolic era and John may have been the last one to have written and been alive. But let's look at the two fishermen first, as you'll see on the outline we're going to do, Peter and then John, before we look really at chapter 21 itself. We first meet Peter back in chapter 1 of John's Gospel where he is given the name Rocky. Not exactly Rocky, he was given the name Kephas, but his name was Simon. Uh, Simon, son of John. 
Uh, if he was Danish, he would have been called Jensen, but he wasn't, so he was called Son of John. Born compared to Jensen, I think, himself, but there you go. Bar Jonah, Son of John. His brother Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, and brother Andrew followed uh, Jesus, met him, talked with him, and concluded that we'd found the Messiah, and so then went and found his brother Simon and brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus immediately looks at Simon and gives him his new name, Kephas, the Aramaic name, Petros, the Greek name. In English it means rocky, or rock, but hey, we don't call anybody rock, we call them rocky, don't we? Uh, we number them, rocky one, rocky two, rocky seven, <laughs> so we call them rocky. And there is Peter, there is the rock. It's a strange name for him, really, because stability of character is not his nature. Uh, strength may be, but Peter's consistent character is impetuosity, irrationness. He's a leader with a big mouth, who tends to speak first and think later. He's a strong-hearted man, who most Gospel readers love. Next to Jesus, he is the most popular of the characters. He's a slightly larger than life character. One time that his mouth did get it right is in chapter 6, when the crowds were deserting Jesus. And Jesus asked the disciples if they were going to desert him too. And Peter replies in chapter 6, verses 68-69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's confidence that Jesus was the one uh, stood out. He was the constant spokesman for the rest and on this occasion said the right thing. His confidence in Jesus was consistent though his understanding was minimal. So when he's in the upper room and Jesus is washing the feet in chapter 13 he comes around to Peter and it's Peter who objected he couldn't understand what was Jesus was doing. He couldn't understand that he had to be served by Jesus. Chapter 13, John's Gospel, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Why didn't he just shut up and listen? He'd just been told he doesn't understand, so what did he do? Keeps talking. That's why we like Peter. We can relate to him. We understand that kind of stupidity. We've all been there and done it ourselves, haven't we? When you don't know what to say, you speak. And so, you don't understand what I'm doing. And so Peter says, but Lord, you are too significant a person to wash my feet. Uh, washing feet is a servant's job, is a, a lowly menial servant's job. You're my Lord, you shouldn't be doing it. You're my Lord, and so let me tell you what you should do which is the kind of stupidity of a Peter, isn't it? He just doesn't, he's committed, absolutely committed. He just doesn't know what he's committed to. Peter, you shall never wash my, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, having swung out that end of the pendulum and shown that he felt completely stupid, he immediately races to the stupidity of the alternative end of the spectrum and says, well then wash me all, wash my feet, my hands, my head, my everything. And Jesus says, look, if you're clean, you only need the washing of the feet. You don't need it. Peter doesn't understand that he cannot have Jesus as Lord unless he has him as his servant. Now, 
It's easy for you and me, well, it's not altogether easy. Most Australians don't understand it, but it's relatively easy because we live this side of the cross. We know the way he became king was dying. We know it's by his laying down his life for us that he becomes the Lord of our salvation. We can understand that unless you have him as your servant, you can't have him as your Lord. But not Peter. Peter's the other side of the cross and he's not thinking too clearly. And it doesn't make sense that your Lord is going to be your servant. That's that's actually fairly hard to grasp hold of. Uh, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that is absolutely true. But it also takes more humility to receive than to give. To actually accept from the hand of somebody else help requires humility. And Peter's not big in the humility area. He's very big in the telling Jesus what he should do because Jesus is his Lord. But to the same meal that he made his most stupid claim, Peter's that is, in chapter 13, verses 37 and 38. Jesus has just said to him, uh, in verse 36, Where I am going you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows you will disown me three times. Jesus says, I'm going and you can't follow me. Why couldn't Peter say, thank you, okay? Especially when Jesus says, later on, you will follow me. He says, okay, I won't do it now, I'll do it later. Not Peter. Peter, no, no, I want to do it now. Got to be now, and I'm going to follow you, and I can follow you anywhere if it even takes taking my life. I'll follow you, I'm absolutely committed to you, I will follow you wherever you're going, I don't know where it is, I don't care where it is, I'm going anyway, and I'll die. He's very big on the mouth and very emphatic in his expression. He couldn't understand Jesus, but he didn't know what was really happening. And Jesus said to him, well, yes, one day you will lay down your life, but now, no. In fact, if you think you're so confident about doing it, I tell you, you'll deny me three times before the cross crows. Well, Peter, he couldn't have got it much it couldn't have got been much more wrong than that. Such bravery, such loyalty, such commitment, that he didn't know what he was talking about. It's a very, very dangerous combination. Total zeal and complete ignorance. Very heady mix, that one, and very dangerous. Zeal is good, it is right, it is impressive, it is attractive. But before you get too jealous, make sure you know what you're jealous about. Well, he was jealous about Jesus and he knew Jesus. He just didn't know what he was talking about. It's not to say he didn't demonstrate real courage. Chapter 18, verses 10, verse 15. It's Peter who brandishes the sword against Jesus' captors in the garden when he's attacked. I mean, there they're surrounded by the armed guards. And Peter takes out the sword and takes off the ear of one of the servants. In 1810, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus had put away your sword. And not only was he the kind of man of action who would take the courageous step, who would wield the sword, who would whip out the gun and shoot the hijackers, not only was he the man of action, but he was a man of real courage in that action. So in 1815, you see, he follows Jesus after the arrest and he follows him right into the high priest's household. And there, quite close to Jesus, 
and listening to what is taking place, he stands. Now that takes a fair amount of courage. I mean, the court is not an honest court. It's not a, it's not a legal court. It's a kind of kangaroo court. It's a, it's a lynch mob that we're talking about. And there won't be much differentiation paid between the leader of this movement and one of the chief outsiders of the movement. If he's caught in that house at that time, there's every sense that he too is going to wind up in the gallows. He is a man of real courage that he was there. But of course, he could only be there by telling lies. He could only be there by denying Jesus. Verse 17, you're not one of the disciples, are you? The girl said, the door asked, he's like, oh, no, I'm not. Or again in 25, as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he said, he was asked, you're not one of the disciples, are you? He's like, no, no, not me. One of the high priest's servants of the relative of the man whose ear had been cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you in the olive grove? And Peter denied it. And at that moment, who is the Christ? Here's the classic failure, isn't it? Just as Jesus predicted, within that evening, Peter denies him three times. He was brave, but as often with bravery there is great foolishness. It's the Bernard Shaw line in his play, The Arms of the Man. And he says that there's not much difference between a brave man and a fool. And the man who leads the cavalry charge is the man who has lost control of his horse. And great truth in it. Very few of the cavalry charges were charges. People tended to trust in. Why would you charge? Just ponder it for a moment or two and realize you trotted it as far as you could and only charged when you saw other people had entered into the folly. He was brave enough to get into the house in order to deny the master he came to serve. Well, to the others, Peter was always the leader. And so the women found that the tomb was empty. They went to Peter and another disciple and reported it. And while the other disciple could outrun Peter, he didn't enter into the tomb. It was Peter who went charging into the tomb. Barged in first. It's so true to character and to type that this brave and impetuous man wouldn't just stand on the outside of the tomb wondering what's happening, wondering about the laws and defilement and touching dead bodies and the Sabbath days and all those kinds of issues that you've got to run through a Jewish mind at that time, fearful of whether guards are around, fearful of there's any reason why you wouldn't race into that tomb at the moment, even if you were good at going into tomb. Not Peter, soon as he arrives, straight on in. He wants to check it out in detail for himself. It is classic Peter. And so again, in today's chapter, chapter 21, which we looked at, where we see the restoration of people, we see, again, Peter is the man, quick, bold action. He's the one to decide to go fishing in verse 3. He's the one who jumps into the water to go to the Lord when the Lord is identified. Uh, he's the one who is taking the leadership all the time. Uh, chapter 21.3 I'm going out to fish Simon Peter told them and they all said well we'll go with you. He's the one you see. And he jumps into the water. He leaves the nets behind. He leaves the fish behind. He leaves the boats behind. Doesn't leave his clothes behind. Well, mate. Have you seen that little verse isn't it? He's going to jump in the water so he puts his clothes on. Most of us take our clothes off when we're going to jump in the water. That's because the New International Version is a discreet and polite version. Uh, we don't want anything here to offend the sensitivities of modern English readers. And so we, we've changed the wording a little bit here. Um, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off. Actually, for he had taken it off, actually says, because he was naked. 
Um, but we don't want to have people naked in the boat, that doesn't sound politically correct, and so in Christian circles. And so we now have him putting clothes on in order to get in the water. Uh, he wasn't putting the clothes on to get in the water, he was putting clothes on so that he could get out of the water onto the shore and not be standing naked at that point. That's why he was throwing something around himself before he jumped in in order to swim ahead. But it was Peter who would be that man of action. It was Peter uh, who would... And even when Jesus restores him to the ministry, feed my sheep, feed my, feed my lambs, etc., Peter's still opening his mouth with the wrong question in uh, verses 21-22. And Jesus identifies that he will lay down his life. Peter looks around and sees John there and says, but what about him? What's going to happen to him? And will not listen to the command of Jesus and still is getting a little rebuke from Jesus in verse 23. If I want him to stay alive, that's his business and my business has nothing to do with you, Peter. Which brings us to that other fisherman, John. Now John is quite different temperament and character which makes the writing of John's Gospel, in one sense, and the Gospels, because it's consistent across the Gospels, either very, very clever fiction, uh, which then gives you a problem because it's just written by first century Palestinian uh, Galilean fishermen, and how come they're such clever writers, or that you're dealing with something to do with history. Because the minor characters, Peter and John, are portrayed with such accurate characterisation. Not easy to do. Not even easy to actually present a major character as an authentic real. Getting a character study is right is quite difficult. It's a, it's a hard thing to do in writing. Have you ever tried to write fiction and just make something up and make it believable? It's quite tricky. But to make up the minor characters as believable and consistent with them in themselves, that is also fairly tricky. Had to get other people to write different documents that have the same character style, that is even trickier. And it's much easier just to write up what you know. Rather easier to write up the facts, to write up the people who did these things. But John is a very different person. He's not named in this book, but he is called that in the other Gospels, because the two sons of Zebedee are John and James. But in John's Gospel, they're not named, they're just called, in 21 verse 2, the two sons of Zebedee. And they were there at the occasion. But he is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see it there in verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Or over in verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And that's even identified more clearly for us as this was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Because we first met the disciple whom Jesus loved back in chapter 13, verse 23, reclining in tables. It, it's a funny way of describing this one. The, the emphasis is not on how great he is that he is loved. It's just a way of saying that there was one who was particularly close to Jesus. Now the other Gospel writers record that for us. The other Gospel writers say there are, there are crowds and then there are twelve apostles. But within the twelve apostles there were three who were particularly close to Jesus. <coughs> there was James, there was John and there was Peter. And Peter knows John as the one whom Jesus was particularly close to. And so in chapter 13, when Jesus predicts his betrayal, Peter motions to the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was sitting next to Jesus, who was reclining next to him at table, and asks, who is it to be? Who is going to betray him? And John whispered it to Jesus, who then told him, 
that it's the one I get, uh, that I will give the piece of bread that I get in the uh, dish, and so Simon, so Judas Iscariot was identified. But John is that one who is particularly close to Jesus. You see it again in chapter 19, where Jesus is dying, and on the cross, verse 25, 26. So there at the scene of the cross, at the foot of the cross, were the women. And John, near the cross of Jesus, stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. See, this man is the one who is particularly close to Jesus. That's what's being identified throughout the Gospel. There was one disciple to whom Jesus trusted his mother, and to whom uh, his mother was, uh, was told to look to him, and who in fact took his mother home, and therefore had particularly close contact with the widowed, presumably widowed mother of Jesus after his death, and knew the story from the beginning because the woman who gave birth to Jesus lived in his home. Here is the one who is close to Jesus. And of course, he was the disciple who outran Peter to the empty tomb in chapter 20, verses 2 to 9. While he might have been slow at entering it, he was the one who described it, and is described as believing at the empty tomb. Verse 8 of chapter 20, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. The precisely what he believed is hard to determine, but he believed in the resurrection. And he believed, verse 9, in an extraordinary way. They still didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That is, it was the scripture, the Old Testament, that taught the disciples about the resurrection. And part of the reason why the disciples and the crowds didn't understand Jesus is they didn't understand the Old Testament. But after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, when they then looked at the Old Testament, they finally understood what it was all about. But John understood when he saw the empty tomb. He was the one who first grasped the significance of what was taking place. He was the one who believed without having seen the risen Lord. He believed in the resurrection. Thomas, you remember, had to, uh, had to have physical, literal proof. He had to see the risen Jesus. He had to see the, ha- the holes in his hand and so on before he would believe. John believed just because of the way the tomb was empty and the grave clothes rolled up as they were. For John was the one who was close to Jesus. He was the one who understood Jesus. He wasn't brave, he wasn't bold, he wasn't the man of action, he wasn't the kind of leader, he wasn't, he just ran fast, but when he got there, he stayed outside, just peeping in. Peter is that bold, brave man of action, but John is the man of understanding and perception. And this closeness to the Lord means it's not surprising that in the boat in chapter 21, it is he who is the one who recognises the Lord. See, Peter may have been the man of action who jumped in, but it's John who is the man of perception and insight 
that looks up at the stranger who has just given them directions, who knows more about fish than fishermen, and recognises that it's the Lord. Here are these two characters. It's interesting really to see them portrayed. It's also interesting to see, especially in Peter, him portrayed warts and all. That is part of the reason we like Peter is because if you've ever said something out of turn or out of place, you know what it feels like to be Peter. And you can identify with his man. He's just got a big mouth. But part of the reason we like Peter, or a kid like Peter, is different than that. That is, he was the leader of Christianity after Jesus leaves the earth. Here is the apostle. And when he is recorded in the gospel accounts, he is not glamorised. He's not recounted to us as someone who did as many miracles as Jesus, or who did great miracles. The apostles did miracles, we're told, in Luke's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel. But individually, they're not told, and... Peter is recorded to you, not always getting it wrong, chapter 6 he got it right, not always getting it wrong in that he was a man of bravery and courage and commitment to Jesus, but he constantly did get it wrong. He didn't understand what he was talking about. He, he kept on making rash claims and he even denied Jesus. That is, if you were writing the story of the founder of your organisation, you would tend to write them favourably. You tend to make them better than they were. You tend to write them up as honourable, just, good, honest, sincere, intelligent men. But that's not how they're written up. They're written up as blundering idiots and fools. And yet they are the great Saint Peter, the great apostles, after whom we will build churches and call them by his name and things like that. That is, what we have here is not legendary material. What we have here is basic eyewitness material. Later centuries would never have written the Gospel of John like this. Later centuries would have given Peter a much nicer profile than this. Chapter 21 reveals to us how Jesus made a deliberate revelation of himself. So in verse 1, we read that Jesus appeared to his disciples again. And in verse 14, this was now the third time of Jesus appearing. Jesus is in the control of the revelation of himself as the risen Lord. And he chose this scene in Galilee for the third revelation. At this time the disciples were in confusion. Uh, they, they didn't know what they were doing, they didn't know what to do, they didn't have to do anything, so they went fishing. It's hard to know whether the going fishing is something that gospel is being critical of or not. It could be they were doing the wrong thing. You know, possibly they should have stayed in prayer. Possibly they should have started preaching the gospel. Hadn't they been sent or didn't Jesus promise to send them in chapter 20? But, it, and it could be seen that they're giving up their apostolic ministry. They're giving up the call to leave their fishing nets. They've gone back fishing. It could be negative. It could be positive. No point hanging around doing nothing. You should earn your keep. So go and fish for a while until you're giving your next instruction. But, the apostles clearly didn't know what to do, as you can see it expressed there in verse 3. Uh, they were all there, and Peter said, I'm going out to fish. And the others said, OK, we'll go too. Uh, I mean, that's the nature of fishing, isn't it? It's just something they went to do. So you see their confusion more in verse 12, where they're eating with Jesus, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Kind of funny, isn't it? 
that lived with this man for the last three years. They were now here with the risen Christ, having breakfast with him. It was the man they saw crucified, and they knew him well. But they wanted to ask, is it really you? Now again, it's the kind of touch of reality that you're dealing with genuine historical documents. That is, if you're dealing with a document that's trying to argue the case that Jesus is the risen Lord and not worry too much about the facts, the fact that the disciples, the chief witnesses, were uncertain in their minds and double-thinking, that is something you would keep out of the, out of the record. You wouldn't mention, like Matthew does in chapter 28, that they doubted the resurrection. They doubted right in front of the risen Jesus. Face to face, you assume they, they were doubting. You wouldn't mention something like that if you're trying to sell a bill of goods. But the Gospel writer's concerned with what happened. And if you're concerned with what happened, it's psychologically more realistic, isn't it? But though you might have lived with this man for three years, though you might know all his ins and outs, his moods, his ups and downs, his successes and his failures, though you were there and saw him crucified, seeing a man who had been crucified three days ago walking around and eating fish with you would be a bit spooky, wouldn't it? And you would want to say, hang on, are you really the one or not? And on the other hand, you wouldn't dare say it, would you? Because, I mean, if you just rose from the dead, I'm not going to challenge you. I think I'll just keep quiet for my doubt. And that kind of double-mindedness, you see, reflected there in verse 12, which only would... I mean, you've got to be a very clever fiction writer to devise a verse like verse 12. You don't have to be very clever to be really there and recorded. Just honest, that's all. And that's what you have here. This kind of psychological uncertainty. It is hard to determine, though, what is the point of 153 fish? What is the significance of such a large catch and what is the significance of the number? Now, there are all kinds of ideas about the symbolism here, but I've got to confess a bit of agnosticism. I'm not sure of the significance and I'm not sure how to be sure. The text doesn't seem to say anything about it and the few hints that you have are just that, just only hints. I mean, there are hints like the fact that they couldn't catch anything at all, all night, and yet Jesus could immediately show them where there were more fish than they could cope with. It's a hint of saying that even though they're fishermen, Jesus knows more about fishing than they do. It's a hint of saying that he is the Lord of the miracles. It's a hint of saying that without him they can't do anything, but with him they can do more than they ever imagined. But if it's talking about the world's mission and the catching of men from all over the nation, more than you can handle, is it catching? Well, it's not drawn out, so I don't know, and I don't know how you would know. Even though it consisted of 153 fish, and they dragged it the last 100 metres up into the shore, the net didn't break, which is surprising, which again is a hint to the supernatural nature of what's taking place here. A hint that this is really beyond human expectation. But why 153? Well, there are any number of fantastic reasons why the number 153 is recorded. People have put their minds to it. You can write PhDs on this. It's that kind of uh, subject. Uh, totally useless. Um, you know, you can make, uh, if you put one on the top line, two on the second, three, and you wind up with 17 on the bottom line with 17 on it because there's an equilateral triangle of 17, and 17 makes up uh, of uh, 10 which is the 10 commandments, and 7 which is the perfect number, uh, all can be made up of, and so you can make up mathematical ways of explaining the 153 and people have uh, over the years. 
They all seem strange and ridiculous to me. I suspect that they counted the 153 fish as fishermen tend to, especially when a catch is unusual. I suspect the people who make up those kinds of numerics are people who have never gone fishing, basically. You see, when you count, when you have a, an extraordinary thing when you go fishing, you've always got to get evidence because no one will believe you later. You've always got to measure the big fish, weigh it, so as to be able to tell people how big it was and how, and you need the evidence. See, I caught a great big salmon uh, over in uh, the Great Lakes in North America. And so, it, it, you know, now you don't know, do you? You know, I mean, what's in a few arm lengths here as to how I've got a, I've got a photograph of it. Just to prove it. So anyone wants to challenge, there's a photograph in my study of the big salmon I caught one day over in wherever it was. Now, in, in Green Bay Packers, I think. So there is this. However, the photographer told me to make sure that when I was holding the salmon, to hold it out like that because it would look bigger against the size of the body. <laughs> the fisherman can never be too trusted about it. So what you do when you get an extraordinary catch is you count them. That's what you do. You always do it. So if you have a great day and you've been out catching tailor and you caught 30 tailor, if I caught 30 tailor, I'd tell you what, I would count them. And I would give you the exact number. It's no good saying I've got a lot of tailor. They had so many fish you would expect a net to break. But it didn't break. How many fish? 153. Which again, I think, just another little sign of their interest in what actually happened rather than symbolising anything extraordinary. A more significant number, though, is the question of the third appearance that he emphasises. He appeared to the disciples twice in the upper room in chapter 20 and now a third time in Galilee. And John seems to emphasise this the third, which reminds me of the first miracle in chapter 2, verse 1, which occurs on the third day, which is a slightly strange phrase there. And the temple which will be destroyed and raised on the third day, and that Jesus rose on the third day. But throughout the Bible, the number three does tend to symbolise a connection with salvation and rescue and restoration. The day of salvation is the third day. You see it in uh, Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, for example. And that is why Jesus has to rise on the third day. And here is the third uh, uh, appearance. It also, though, leads you into the fact that Peter is asked the same question three times. But more important than symbolism is the reality of the resurrection. But John has not only shown us the empty tomb and the appearance of the women and the two appearances to the disciples the week afterwards, and especially to Thomas in the upper room, but now he provides yet more evidence of a subsequent meeting of the disciples and Jesus, not in some dark, spooky place like a tomb or a garden, but out in the open air, by the lake, where they all saw him together, all seven that were there, and ate down, sat down and ate breakfast with him. Here we have to face our materialistic scepticism, friends. If a priori we decide that a dead man cannot rise again, then we'll have to look for some alternative explanation to the gospel. But if we're open to any conclusion as we weigh the evidence, then we'll have to acknowledge that on all the normal historical evidences there is a unanimity about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, which is the more intellectually honest approach? To rule out the evidence on the basis of a theory or to adapt the theory on the basis of the evidence? We mustn't confuse science with materialism. It's often confused, 
So they're quite two different things. Materialist philosophy will not allow anything to happen other than what we can materialistically explain because there is nothing in this world other than a materialistic world. And therefore, a resurrection from the dead is by definition impossible, and so it doesn't matter how much evidence you provide, it's impossible. Can't be done. That's materialism. Science is a view of life whereby you will constantly change your theories in the light of the evidence that is available to you. Here, the overwhelming weight of evidence is that this man rose from the dead. Every piece of historical analysis you can do on it points in the same direction. He rose from the dead. And the only reason why you will not accept that piece of information is because of a materialistic ideology which says that's impossible. Well, this is the right scientific method at this point. I suggest to you it is to accept the evidence rather than stick with a theory for which there is no evidence. For there is no evidence that there is nothing in the universe other than the materialistic universe. That is the assumption upon which people are working. There's no evidence for that view, per se. And there can be no evidence for the view if every time there is a piece of evidence, like the resurrection, you deny it because it doesn't fit in with the theory. That is called a closed mind. Very closed. Well, in the context of the risen Christ's appearance, we read of Peter's challenge. Jesus speaks specifically to Peter. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Who are the more than these, or what are the more than these? More than these fishing and fish and fishing tackle and more than this activity? More than these disciples? That is, you love the disciples, but do you love me more than you love the disciples? Or, do you love me more than the disciples love me? It's not actually grammatically possible to show which of these he means, though in context I think it's most likely the third one. Do you love me more than the rest of the disciples? Because in his leadership back in chapter 13, 37, he's the one who is committed. He's the one who's going to lay down his life. And the parallel we have in Mark's Gospel says Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered today, you all before the cock crows. And Peter emphatically goes on, if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Peter feels that he is the most committed, the most absolutely loving of to Jesus. And so Jesus is asking the question, do you love me more than the others love me? He asks it three times and gets three answers. And there's a subtle difference in the wording. He uses a different word for love than Peter does, etc. But I think it's just stylistic. I don't think there's anything particularly significant in it. But Peter is asked three times because he denied three times. And now he affirms his love three times, although you'll notice that Peter has still got the same emotionism. The third time he's asked, he's sitting the dummy. You know, he's hurt. Why do you have to ask you three times? You know everything. What are you still asking before? He can't actually work it out. But just a little while ago, he denied him three times. Everybody who's ever read the Gospel has worked it out, but Peter, he just couldn't tumble to it. And uh, that kind of antagonism is reflected in Mark's Gospel about Peter and the third time he's asked him there, he's very angry and starts to curse. But now, with each answer comes a command, and there are three commands. Feed my land, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Notice they're not Peter's sheep, they're Christ's sheep. And notice Peter is not given a title or an office, but a job. He's not given the title of venerable, or reverend, or most reverend, or highly reverend, or he's told to do something. Christian ministry is about doing things. It's not about status, but service. 
like our Lord himself who was the good shepherd and as the Lord the good shepherd had to lay down his life for the sheep so Peter is going to lay down his life for the sheep and so Jesus predicts his death that in his old age he'll be led to where he doesn't want to go and that he too will be put to death as Jesus was put to death and he would glorify God in his death as Jesus and so he would follow Jesus to death the other gospels say it in terms of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me Peter then wants to ask, well everyone lay down their life what about this man, John, is he going to lay down his life as well to which Jesus says, look Peter you just follow me and go to the cross and leave him to do what I want him to do that is, Peter is not placed in authority over John. Peter, Peter's responsibility is to his master. John's responsibility is to his master. Peter is not got, John has not got responsibility to Peter in any way. And so he receives the slight rebuke from Jesus, which then became misunderstood, that what was being said was that John was never going to die, which then created a problem in the community because it raised question about John and the truthfulness of his witness. But this false rumour went out that Jesus had said John wouldn't die before he returned. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die, he'd just say, if, it, uh, if, if I choose to come back beforehand, what's that got to do with you? You follow me. But you can imagine as John comes to the end of his life and he is the last disciple, then everybody will be hanging on him and waiting for the return of the Messiah. And you can also imagine that if and when John died, there could be considerable disillusionment. And so John is adamant to make clear that there was no promise that Jesus would return before then. In fact, verse 24, it is made clear that he had the true witness. It's a little hard to know who the we are, but there are others who see this document and confirm it at this point, that John is the one of true witness. It's an affirmation to the very gift of John and a perception into the insight of the disciple closest to Jesus. That is, Peter might have been the man of action who in the end is the martyr for the cause, but John is the man of perception who can truly explain to you what Jesus is about. We need both, don't we? We need the leaders who will stand up in their courage and be willing to die for the cause and who will, in fact, do it. We also need the person of perception and understanding who grasps the significance of what is taking place. Peter and John both had their place and John spoke, verse 25, of the greatness of Jesus and that he has chosen just some things to tell us in order that we might believe he is the Son of God. Not everything, because if he told you everything, why the libraries couldn't fill up all that Jesus did. Fishermen are renowned for their ability to exaggerate their catch. We have here in John the truthful fisherman. He is the one who was there, possibly the last one of those who was there to be alive amongst the disciples, the apostles. He saw the glory of the Lord in the cross. He believed in the resurrection at the tomb itself. He was the one who recognised the Lord when they sought him. And he is the one who has borne faithful witness for us to read, to know what had happened, what happened, and what it meant. John's a very important person for us, that we might have the apostolic history and the apostolic testimony to Jesus. Next uh, few weeks you'll see on our outline, we're going to look at the Trinity in John, because this seemingly strange but distinctive Christian doctrine of the Trinity 
is particularly important in the Gospel of John. So we're going to take the next few weeks, you'll see on the front of your outline, to be looking at how John deals with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and next week, the Trinity itself. I hear the ripoff, you know what to do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your servants, we thank you for choosing the men that you chose, we thank you for their gifts and what they have done, we thank you for your servant John in particular and that he has borne testimony to us of your Son and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.